Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Joining me today is Dr. James Drees and Dr. Tim Stone. Dr. Drees is a sports med surgeon with MedStar over in Baltimore Towson area, and Dr. Tim Stone is a sports physical therapist with True Sports Physical Therapy. Combined, these two have years and years of experience treating athletes, and they're both very well known for the work that they do with ACLs. Today we're talking all about the ACL. We take a deep dive into mechanism of injury of the ACL, surgical considerations for the ACL, and rehabilitation considerations post-op ACL all the way from early phase to return to run to late phase and everything in between. This is a great episode and you're sure to learn something regardless of if you're a physical therapist, strength coach, chiropractor, surgeon, patient, parent, or student. Now go grab a pen and paper and get ready to take a lot of notes because we really dig in deep and there's so much good content and good information in this episode. I hope you all enjoy it. Dr. Stone, Dr. Drees, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you both on today. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So for people who aren't familiar with either of you, would you mind kind of filling us in a bit about all the amazing things that you do and who you are and all? And Thank you. Um, I'm Jamie Drees. I'm a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon. I'm at MedStar, um, trained at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York and at the University of Pittsburgh back in the early 2000s. And I've been a sports medicine doctor in the community for the past 20 years my focus really uh, in my practice is in management of athletic injuries, both in um, high level athletes, but as well as recreational athletes. Um, I'm primarily focus on shoulder, elbow and knee injuries, proximal hamstring injuries. I don't do joint replacement surgery. So I really focus on, on those athletic injuries and really trying to just educate patients about what it means to have these injuries, what the process is like in going through the treatment of it, whether that's conservative or surgical management, and then ultimately doing my best to try to get patients back to the highest levels of activity that they're capable of uh, participating in afterwards. Awesome. Yeah, my name's uh, Tim Stone, and I am a physical therapist um, out of uh, the greater Baltimore area in Maryland. Um been treating for a little bit over five years. Um, I started my journey out in Australia um, and then came to college out here in in the U.S. um, where I uh, did my training at University of Maryland. Um, I now work for uh, True Sports Physical Therapy. We're, uh, like I said, a Baltimore-based sports PT company. Um, We have locations all over Maryland um, and now up into uh, Pennsylvania. So, I kind of help in a new role, go out to all of those clinics um, and, and aid our physical therapists on, um, you know, how to perform at their best or how to, how to learn and how to kind of grow, uh, but also kind of teach them the, you know, quote unquote, true sports way, um, which is, you know, long treatment sessions, one-on-one with their, with their therapists all the time. Um, and just sort of um, how to, you know, maximize the, the rehab process. Um, and so I, I do see probably the largest number of my patients have um, or are going to have ACL reconstruction. Um, and so that's sort of just um, fallen in my lap, really. It wasn't a huge passion of mine to begin with, but 
once I started le learning um, about that process and working with a lot of the patients, um, I really fell in love with it and um, have learned actually a lot from Dr. Dries over uh, my five years of being with True Sports and, and, and working with those kinds of athletes. Yeah, you guys are very well known for the ACLs, both from a rehab standpoint, but also a surgical standpoint. And I felt like the combo of Dr. Dries and Dr. Stone uh, cannot be beat as far as ACLs and knee injuries in general goes. So getting into that a little bit, when someone is thinking about knee injuries and that sort of thing, I think everyone's afraid of the ACL. That's where their mind goes first, because I don't know about you, but I've never heard anything good about the ACL. So if someone's going to injure their ACL, how might they do that? What would you say the main mechanisms of injury for that sort of thing would be? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think the, the primary mechanism for sure that's been most broadly described is, is that of a non-contact change of direction injury where simply the involved leg is planted, the athlete is attempting to change direction, pivot on that leg. And with that, what happens is that the tibia becomes trapped. The, the uh, tibia internally rotates excessively on the femur. And with that, the ACL is injured. So the most common mechanism is certainly that of a non-contact injury. It can happen from a contact mechanism as well. And in general there, the foot is, is planted. There's a direct blow applied to the knee and that can happen from any of a variety of directions. Those are the injury mechanisms that oftentimes lead to more complex injury patterns where multiple other ligaments can become involved as well. But the vast majority of these injuries that we're talking about in sports are non-contact injury mechanisms. And is there any like structural things that would kind of contribute to that so i know people in the past have talked about like you know decreased ankle dorsiflexion or hip stability and that sort of thing have you noticed that there's like a trend as far as prevention is concerned is there something that people should be watching for compensation wise or can this really just happen to anyone yeah i mean i would say from my side of things and, and tim can comment too but there have been dozens of different predispositions that have been studied in athletes and female athletes in particular because of the increased risk in young female athletes. So um, you know, anything from a variety of anatomic factors, such as uh, the size of the intercondylar notch where the ACL resides, the slope of the tibia, um, different factors with regard to um, hormonal factors in young women, um, we certainly know that non-contact injuries are more common within families. We see families where there are generations of non-contact injuries to the ACL. We're seeing it more commonly now because women have so many more sporting opportunities than what they previously had. So oftentimes in the past, when I would speak with young women, their mothers hadn't necessarily suffered ACL injuries, but in part that was because their risk profile was different because they never had the opportunity opportunity to play sports as much at the uh, collegiate levels or beyond that. So certainly a family history is a factor. There are anatomic factors. Uh, Tim can talk more about some of the biomechanical factors or some of the uh, quad to hamstring ratio strength factors at play, but, uh, but the familial component is a significant one. Yeah, I think um, in in general terms, um, you know, that Dr. Dries already alluded to is that you know probably the most common like consistent thing that that I see in the clinic is that you know 
there's more females who are rehabbing than males. Um, and, and from a, like a muscular perspective or from a strength training age perspective, I think, you know, there is some decent evidence to, to suggest that, you know, um, stronger athletes like or people with a you know greater training age in, in, the, in the weight room or, or had some sort of like performance-based training like will reduce their risk but um, I kind of changed my mind like from a from an anecdotal perspective on, on this every you know every, every year I think that we see everything you know we're seeing you know, elite NFL athletes have it down to, you know, prepubescent kids um, going through this male, female, tall, um, with poor muscle mass or long limbs, short limbs with a lot of muscle mass. Um, and so I think it is really, you know, it's really hard from, you know, when you get that question, you know, should we have done something different, you know, with our kid to prevent this? Or it's really, you know, it's really a tough, a tough um, question to kind of answer, I think. Right, right. And I mean, I like to point out to people who think, well, maybe I should have done more strength and conditioning, or maybe I should have hit the gym more. I mean, Saquon Barkley himself tore his quads a few or tore his ACL a few years ago. And if you've seen his quads, you would know he works out a little bit. So it can happen to anyone, even the strongest of the strong athletes. Um, and as you mentioned, it's not always the direct blow that causes it. Sometimes it's just a little misstep or moving incorrectly. Now, unfortunately, sometimes we have the ACL tear, but sometimes it comes with a lot of other things. So it could be a meniscus tear or another ligamentous tear. And that kind of complicates things from a surgical and rehabilitation standpoint. If there's a meniscus tear, you're going to see what non-weight bearing for probably six weeks easily afterwards. Um, is there any kind of combination that you would normally see with the ACL? Like, would you see ACL with MCL or ACL with a certain meniscus torn? Or is there not really a pattern when the ACL tears to other things that could go wrong? There definitely are patterns that that appear with different uh, types of ACL injuries, as well as with the chronicity of them. So in general, acute ACL tears, because of the way that the knee pivots, it really excessively loads the lateral meniscus. So lateral meniscus tears are much more common with the initial ACL injury. But the other pattern that we see is that in, in young athletes and patients who have chronic ACL injuries, the medial meniscus or the inner meniscus is the one that really is the primary secondary stabilizer. So that's the one that typically becomes injured in more chronic injury patterns. And then in addition to that, we see cartilage injuries inside the knee early on, typically on the outer side associated with that valgus blow to the knee and, and the lateral sided meniscal injuries. So those injury patterns are pretty common. Some of these direct contact injuries, though, we get much more complex injury patterns where it can, it can really vary much more so. But, but certainly those non-contact initial injuries, the lateral meniscus, chondral injuries in the lateral compartment, those are pretty common. And then the MCL would be the other uh, ligamentous injury that is frequently seen with that initial injury pattern. When the foot is trapped and there's the lateral side of the knee, those other injuries can occur with that as well. But that non-contact mechanism is typically an ACL lateral meniscus, sometimes MCL injury pattern. Gotcha. That sounds like a pretty unhappy trio, if you would ask me. Um, I've also read in some places too that a fracture can accompany an ACL as well, right? I think it's called a Segond fracture. I might've mispronounced that. 
So the Sagun fracture gets to uh, an important thing to talk about, which is basically the Sagun fracture is a classic fracture on the outer side of the knee, just below the joint line on the tibial side and really represents a failure of, of the anterolateral ligament or lateral capsular attachment on the outer side of the knee, which is an important restraint to internal rotation of the tibia as well. So it really points to a, a it may not just be that ligament inside the knee that's actually injured with that excessive rotation uh, and injury to the, to the ligamentous complex on the outer side of the knee can be involved in that as well. Oh, unfortunately, this is very a pessimistic start of like all the things that can go wrong. But there are some great surgeons out there, such as yourself, who can take something a little bit messy, for lack of a better way to put it, like a torn ACL or a torn ACL and meniscus, and make it a lot stronger and a lot more solid than it was initially, I believe, with some of the different graft choices. So say someone tears their ACL and you want to use the best graft possible, you want them to be stronger, and you want to come back uh, better than they were before. What would be your go-to as far as graft choice and what kind of advice would you have for a patient who, you know, they tore their ACL and they need to consider things with a surgeon and talk about their options? What kind of things should they be considering? Great question. Um, I think that, that there's no one right answer for everyone. Um, I think some, some choices are better for certain athletes and certain patients, and some are better for others. We certainly know just in terms of global view here of, of graft choices that using donor tissue as a primary graft source is going to lead to a significantly higher risk of re-injury. In young, active, high-risk patients, four to five times increased risk of re-injury of tearing their graft with donor tissue versus using their own tissue. So in my hands, that simply precludes the use of donor tissue as a primary graft source there. As you get older, though, that risk tends to mitigate and, and become lower, although it still remains higher with the use of donor tissue. So I simply do not advocate the use of donor tissue for any of my patients, regardless of age. Um, I think it just simply introduces too much risk and in the hands of an experienced surgeon, the risk of using, of using your own tissue is, is pretty low and can certainly be managed well. So in general, I would say for the youngest, highest risk athletes, where particular where there's uh, hyperextension of the knee joint, a lot of evidence of ligamentous laxity, a big pivot shift inside the knee, the graft in that instance that clearly has been shown to be most effective is the use of the central third of the patellar tendon. Um, in other patients, though, who may be older, who don't have the signs of ligamentous laxity that we see in that younger group I was, I was mentioning, then sometimes the use of their hamstrings or even quad tendon uh, can be a reasonable option for those patients. But um, I think there's, there's more than one answer to that question. I tell people all the time, there's not a right answer and a wrong answer. It's really a matter of what you're most willing to accept whether it's um, you know, a lower risk of re-injury or potentially a lower risk of having pain in the front of the knee and difficulty with kneeling and some of the other risks that are directly associated to one of those graft choices versus another. I always advocate that my patients speak with their physical therapists and others 
who are experienced in managing these injuries afterwards to get their perspectives as well, because I think they see it from, from a different light and, uh, and, and they can see some of the challenges that young athletes and patients in general have with the use of different graft types. And then with all that information at hand, making an educated decision about what's best for the individual uh, patient or athlete. I love that teamwork and collaborative approach. And it sounds like that's where Tim comes in because I know he's seen hundreds, if not thousands of post-op ACLs. So have you kind of noticed certain uh, trends or differences between say like a hamstring graft versus a patellar tendon graft on your end? Or have you noticed anything when a ALL is introduced into the surgical uh, procedure as well? So like an ACL and ALL at the same time? If I were to culminate like all that information, probably the, you know, the most robust and, and, and best outcomes I see would come from um, that, that, um, that BPB or that, that patella tendon, that middle third graft. Um, you know, the fixation seems to be better. I find athletes are more confident um, on their knees, uh, with their knees, with jumping, landing, and, and cutting. Um, and we definitely see, a, a, you know, um, a decreased risk of, of returning patients that have that, um, that, that choose that graft. Now, you know, as Dr. Drees, like, spoke about, I think there's a, a ton of factors that go into that. Um, that BTB graft tends to be a little bit more challenging to rehab. Um, and so if you don't have access to, um, therapy very frequently with people who are experienced at, um, treating that rough, um, particularly or, or doing a, a large number of ACLs, um, in a, in a given year, I think, you know, there's more leeway to a positive outcome with something like a soft tissue hamstring or, or quad tendon graft, I think, um, and, and so that's a consideration to take in. Um, to to take in, I think too, you never want to go to your surgeon saying my therapist says I should get this graft when the surgeon doesn't do that graft selection. If, you know, it's not in their repertoire. So I think you know we always say these are we give them pros and cons of, of each graft choice, but you know make sure you talk to your surgeon, which ask them which one they're most comfortable. What are, what are they best at, at, at doing, you know? And if you're not happy with that choice, then you can, you know, go and ask for a second opinion elsewhere. Um, hands down, like Dr. Dre says, I, I think that um, I get very scared when we have um, an allograph come into the clinic, um, especially with most of our clientele being athletic. Um, but I think too, now the, the, the landscape of like quote unquote athlete has changed so much, you know, we have 15, 60 year old, 70 year old skiing, playing soccer, playing pickup basketball, you know, the landscape of what an athlete is, is or was 20 years ago is not, not the same as it, as it is now. And so, um, I just think that that allograph is, is not, is also you know, not a, not a great choice. Um, I, I would be, you know, really interested in going down that path of the, the addition of that, um, the ALL, um, ligament reconstruction and, um, probably pass that back over to Dr. Drees in terms of, um, describing, you know, what that surgery looks like. And then maybe I can elaborate a little bit more on, um, you know, what it looks like in the clinic. 
Yeah, a great question, Tim. And and I think let me let me just take a step back too and say, I also I have these conversations with patients multiple times each week. I tell people all the time that physical therapy is going to be half the battle in terms of having success here at least. So the importance of doing good physical therapy um, is going to be absolutely imperative to a successful outcome. And it's important for a number of reasons. I think early on, it's important to avoid many of the pitfalls that can occur when we're not focused on the right things in physical therapy. I think all too often, uh, patients and their therapists become too focused on flexion early on, when in reality, flexion is not important during the first week or two. Extension is completely imperative early on. And if you don't get that back, particularly with a, with a patellar tendon graft, it's going to be virtually impossible to get that back. Your physical therapist is crucial in managing that and recognizing when that's a problem. And the other, the other thing, and there's, there's multiple stages along the way where physical therapy becomes important, but it's also incredibly important in terms of the transition from more physical therapy to strengthening and conditioning and return to play. Your physical therapist has to have the faculties to be able to help you make the transition to return to play safely, because we know that it's really that transition and the initial return to play that places the athlete at the most risk for having a recurrent injury. Your physical therapist has to be experienced and really skillful in the ability to make that transition and recognize what different pitfalls can occur along that pathway and where deficiencies may exist with a given athlete. So the, the uh, importance of having skillful physical therapy cannot be overstated uh, and is such an important part of the recovery. Um, in terms of the um, anterolateral ligament, I think that has probably, I look at ACL surgery over the last few decades, and I think in the last five years in particular, the recognition of the importance of the anterolateral ligamentous structures has really revolutionized ACL surgery. All too often in the past, I think we have felt like we were having high levels of success with ACL surgery, when in reality, we weren't. If you look at a number of studies in higher level athletes, you'll find that 30 to 40% of those athletes did not return to the same level of, of high level play in their athletic careers after having surgery for ACL problems. So we've certainly seen very high levels of athletes that have had some persistent problems. One of the questions is why that is, and there's some different perspectives of that and why that may be. But certainly clinically what we've seen is that not uncommon whatsoever in that population was that ACL reconstruction was able to more effectively restore stability in the sagittal plane or front the, the stability of the tibia from sliding forward, but not very effective at restoring stability from a rotational standpoint, where the tibia would still excessively internally rotate on the femur. We call that a pivot shift on exam. But what that means is it's putting excessive strain on the graft. And it's also loading the meniscus, particularly the medial meniscus, much more significantly than in the stable, uninjured state of the knee. What the anterolateral ligament has clearly been shown to do is that it can help to control that rotation much better and make the knee behave biomechanically much more normally. We've seen that over the course of the last five years in a number of different biomechanical and clinical studies. 
I've certainly seen that in my clinical practice over the course of the last few years. And I've talked with a lot of other physicians that do this at a high level, and they all universally agree that that, that ligament complex on the outer side of the knee is really important. And recognition of that and reconstruction of that can have really significant benefits in terms of restoring better stability to the knee and ultimately leading to uh, less risk of injury to the graft, less risk of meniscal injury and moving forward. And it has to also lead to higher return to play in my mind. Um, That has not definitively been proven in studies thus far, but I think we'll see that in moving forward that, uh, that that ligament complex is important. And I honestly believe it will become more the standard of care and moving forward in terms of reconstruction of this ligament complex uh, with ACL surgeries and patients and helping them to return to sport. And with the uh, surgical procedure, I believe you take a piece of the IT band for the ALL that you uh, reconstruct, is that correct? So there's different ways to do that, and and they've been proven to be relatively equivalent uh, from an outcome standpoint. Historically, in the pediatric literature, the iliotibial band would be used to basically free a a portion of the tendon uh, above the knee joint and then use that portion of the tendon to reconstruct the ligament while keeping the iliotibial band intact at its insertion on the tibia. In addition to that, a free graft, and I typically use the smaller of the two hamstrings, the gracilis graft from the inner side of the knee, that can be used as a free graft and is is undeniably a more anatomic reconstruction of where that anterolateral ligament complex typically um, originates and inserts. But certainly the iliotibial band procedure has also been proven to be equivalent in terms of surgical outcomes and controlling rotation better. So those are two different options to basically achieve the same thing. I like it. So Tim, from your standpoint, how would that impact your PT considerations or your overall plan of care moving forward? Yeah, so I think um, there, there are some changes early on in, in, in the rehab process when, when we do encounter an ALL reconstruction. And, you know, Dr. Drew's talking, you know, clearly about how, how important it is to regain extension or, or hyperextension. Um, um, and the other caveat, too, to mention there is that the only other, the other graph I think that makes it quite difficult to, to gain that, that, that extension can be the, um, the hamstring soft tissue graph, just because you get a little bit of scarring on that posterior capsule on the, on the posterior side, um, which prevents that, that hyperextension if, you know, you're not on top of it early. So, you know, that can be one, one area where we see a little bit of, like, in terms of graph choice, like a tougher selection in terms of regaining that hyperextension. Um, you don't tend to see that as much with the BTV graft, um, um, unless there's some, you know, something like a cyclops lesion forms. With with the ALL, the, the caveat which I've seen in the last couple of years is that I think you know, in conjunction with, and I've seen it uh, more so in conjunction with a meniscus repair as well, is as is that it actually is much more difficult to regain flexion early, and so. Um, while we sit here and, you know, when, whenever we talk about these things, we, we talk about regaining hyperextension, you know, really early. And you know, typically the conversation I have is these extension things that I want you to do to help regain the hyperextension is 90% of what I want you to do. And the flexion early on is 10% of what I want you to do. Um, with, with the ALL, it's, it's, you know, a little bit more evenly split. You know, I, 
definitely have these patients come in minimum of three days a week in that early um, point of rehab. I want to make sure that I am putting that knee through both hyper, you know, extension, hyperextension and flexion um, very, very frequently and early on. Um, and, and both of them kind of um, are, are, are hurting each other. So when you do a lot of hyperextension, you work on extension with, with the patient, um, then if, when you go to reverse that, that position into flexion, it's, you know, it's stiff and it's tough and then vice versa. So, um, you know, if we're now saying that we want you to do more flexion um, and have an increased frequency of flexion, you're, you're automatically going to increase the risk of not regaining extension. Now, from a week-to-week -week perspective, the more frequently you go in both directions, you know, the, the better the knee tends to, to free up. But, um, yeah, there's definitely a, a consideration with flexion um, after that ALL um, reconstruction. Uh, and I think, you know, that takes a little bit more skill as a, as a therapist um, to, to overcome as well. As you were talking, I realize it's not just the range of motion that patients need to get back, but the strength to do it actively themselves. And I think that's a piece uh, a lot will miss as well is they'll, you know, passively move someone into hyperextension or full extension and they'll say, hey, you know, you've got full extension range of motion. You're great. You're good to go. And next thing you know, the patient can't actively do it themselves. And uh, I picked up the heel pop from you guys because I, one, I had the pleasure of learning from you. And two, uh, I absolutely love that as an active way. And you can start it with the NMES and the strap and then uh, progress it all the way down to the point where the patient is actively doing it themselves without anything. Um, so I like the ability to actively do it as a in in addition to passively being able to do it. Early on, is there anything else that you tend to look at with your patients post-operatively? Do you go with uh, a lot of patellar mobility or is there anything that really they have to prove to you before they can kind of progress forward? Um, I think that the general concept that, that I would that I would give advice on or suggest that, that I do is really early and often with with everything, but at a very low intensity. So, you know, the, when the knee comes out of surgery, obviously, like, it's unhappy, right? It's swollen, it's angry. Um, and, and, and we know that, you know, pain and swelling are, are, are counterproductive for improving, um, you know, strength or getting better quad recruitment. Um, the counterproductive for range of motion and, and healing and all those kinds of things. So um, I think, you know, that, that uh, the, the session frequency should be very high, but the intensity should be very low. Um, I think we struggle with that as a, as a, um, as a profession in gaining surgeons trust to let us do that. Um, th there's multiple times where I try to book somebody post-op um frequently or and early up you know it was close to one day after or two days after um and then surgeons are unhappy with that and so that's something i think that we need to get better as as a profession in um you know in basically like gaining that trust so that they know that <clears throat> the patient is better off with us than doing the exercises provided by a piece of paper at home um, the fact that that trust is not there right now suggests that surgeons trust the piece of paper and the patient at home more than the therapist. Um, that's not, not okay. 
Um, and we need to do a better job of making sure, you know, that, that message kind of, um, kind of gets through, um, in terms of like specifics on exercises, um, to make sure that, you know, we're regaining that hyperextension. Um, you spoke about the heel pop. Um, that's definitely a yoni-ism um, that, that we all learned when we came on, on with Crew Sports. Um, but we kind of do that in three phases. So um, basically what that looks like is long sitting on the floor or on a table. Um, the first phase is basically assistance from a belt or a strap where you're pulling the foot towards um, the head or towards the nose so that you regain that hyperextension. Um, and then you actively squeeze the quad. And, you know, that might be done with um, electrical stimulation or it might be done without it. You know, once we have good recruitment, we can see a quad firing, we'll ask them to move on to phase two, which looks like pulling the strap um, so the foot goes towards the head into that hyperextended position and then trying to maintain that quad squeeze while we let go of the strap. And so once you let go of the strap, if the heel maintains that heel height, we look like we have full, you know, control of hyperextension um, when it's placed in that position. And then the final phase of that of that heel pop is just to remove the strap altogether and to ask them to go from the heel on the table to a quad squeeze um, and to see that hyperextension actively performed by the patient. Once they're already done that, then you can move them onto things like straight leg raises. And then once they show proficiency in a straight you know, straight leg raise, um, then we sort of talk about um, what it looks like to walk or, or to regain like ambulation and things like that. Um, that's the extension piece in terms of flexion. Um, we always do this starting seated at the edge of the bed or edge of the table. So that the patient can, um, can look at you and you can look at the patient. And as we bring, uh, we bring the knee off the edge of the table, the heel is held in the therapist's hand and we slowly lower the heel down towards the ground and then back um, towards the edge of the table. Um, as we do that, um, you can see the patient's response to the exercise. Um, that, that's important because, you know, if you get to a point which is uncomfortable for, for that patient, you know, we can pause, stop, return back to the original position and then try again. The other thing that's important, I think, too, is that when you do that, you know, the, the weight of the lower limb or the weight of the leg is causing a distraction or a distracting force on the knee. That's much more comfortable when you're going into flexion rather than what you typically see where someone's laying on their back or in supine and they're pushing the heel towards your butt. That kind of creates this compression in the knee joint. Um, if you have meniscus involvement, um, that tends to be a little bit more uncomfortable. So we always do flexion seated edge of bed and we always do um, extension starting with the strap and working away from the strap. I like that a lot. And there's a very well thought out intensive plan to that. It's a stepwise progression and not just someone kind of randomly saying, okay, we're going to do quad sets and we're just going to do quad sets and quad activation all day long. I like the progression. And I also like that, you know, the only modality we've even talked about is uh, e-stim. So when you were uh, talking earlier there, you mentioned that you use the NMES unit uh, to kind of bring the quad back and fire that up. But it doesn't sound like you're doing any kind of like ice or anything like that early on, because I would imagine that a patient is able to take ice out of their freezer and put it on their own knee. They probably don't need to go to a physical therapist for that 
And I would imagine, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, Dr. Dries. I would imagine that a physical therapist who places their time with their patient doing things like exercises and manual therapy interventions that they can't get on their own would probably wing your trust over a lot more than someone who just puts ice on someone's knee and uses modalities early on for pain and swelling control. Um, going back to Tim's point earlier about physical therapists winning over the trust of surgeons to handle a early post-op ACL. Well, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I, I typically recommend to my patients that they meet their physical therapist prior to surgery, because I think the relationship is an important one. And, and it is important that there's a level of trust in that relationship when the patient comes in immediately following surgery and you know, there's a lot of anxiety, there's pain, there's other issues, and having a relationship that that has had a chance to um, to sort of begin prior to the, the initial visit following surgery, I think is important. I also agree that I think a passive physical therapy experience is not a good one for a, an initial post-op ACL problem. It's very intensive. It requires a lot of hands-on treatment, but it also requires an experienced set of eyes that can recognize problems before they become too significant to be able to manage in physical therapy alone. So uh, I think there's, there's a level of experience, there's intuition, um, there's a lot of different factors that come into play with physical therapy being successful, but it's certainly a very intensive process that requires PTs that, that are very hands-on, that are listening very much to what patients are saying, um, and really a direct communication then between the therapist and the physician with regard to, to how to in any way alter the treatment as it might be. I think in the initial phase of physical therapy, from my standpoint, um, what's what's really important as well as managing their edema. I mean, you've got to get the swelling under control or you just simply will not be able to get their motion back. If, if someone's on their feet a lot, they, they're keeping a big effusion or a lot of swelling in their knee, it's going to be virtually impossible for them to get their flexion back in that way. Whereas for patients who are able to get that under control initially, their range of motion is generally going to be much less challenging than it will be for someone who's more swollen. But those are all, those are some of the issues that I'm talking about when I say that physical therapy is such an important part of the recovery process and ultimately an important part of patients having success when all is said and done. I like that a lot. And uh, I agree with the point of swelling because those post-operative patients, whether it's post-op knee replacement, post-op ACL, post-op any joint, the extra fluid that can accumulate there can really hinder them. And it's one of those things too. I like to take a measurement myself of the circumference because it usually surprises people just how much stuff can accumulate around the joint. And I think that's a place too to kind of do a little bit in the physical therapy side in the clinic, but also promote the patient to do something simple like elevate for prolonged periods of time at home because you know they don't have to spend two hours in physical therapy with their legs propped up just so gravity can pull fluid out, but they can do that at home. And that's the kind of thing that's easy enough for them to do and do correctly. And um, it, it's not something that I would say requires a watchful eye the entire time, if that makes sense. 
No, I, I think, think that, that makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. And, and I would say if you get on top of that early, if you get the swelling under control early and you make a lot of progress, it's going to be easier in moving forward. If you have someone that's on their feet a lot, though, initially, or just simply is not managing the swelling, it's going to be an uphill battle for, you know, for weeks or months to come. Yeah, I think that really speaks again to you know that that concept of of increased frequency and decreased intensity. So I think you know they, there was like I think uh, maybe ten years ago uh, a lot of studies that revolved around, and I think it was mostly you know um, knee replacement stuff. You know, we need to like get early ambulation and get people out out of bed and, and walking and moving around, and that I think trickled over into the sports medicine side of things, and then that. Um, combined with people that, you know, work with high level athletes often meant that like, you know, we're seeing people, you know, trying to do a trap bar deadlift, like a week post-op, you know, we're doing, um, you know, we're having them walk up and down the stairs within a week of surgery. We're, we're having them do, just do all this stuff that, that, that goes, you know, is counterproductive to healing or counterproductive to letting the body kind of like do its thing to get rid of that fluid and edema. I think, this is part of the reason why as PT, sometimes we shoot ourselves in the, in the foot and we don't gain that trust. Um, I think the intention was, you know, really, really there, right? That we had the right intentions that we want to mobilize patients early and get them moving or reduce their risk of X, Y, Z. But, you know, we don't have those risks um, so much with, with, with that, like more athletic population or people that experience an ACL reconstruction typically, um, because they are generally like healthy um, individuals. So um, doing some form of like muscle squeeze and some form of range of motion um, and some form of elevation um, combined with uh, medications and, and things like that, they really have a low risk of, of, of issues of um, clotting or, you know, or DVT. So, you know, we don't need to have them um, up and weight bearing and you know doing a tons tons of exercises to reduce the risk of that and we certainly don't need to have them starting it a week after because we're 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 thinking we're going to improve the strength um, of someone down the road by starting a strength training program but like one to two weeks out in, in actual fact i think we're going to see the opposite because you see this like angry swollen knee that continues to be angry and swollen six weeks, eight weeks, you know, four months down the track. Um, and we know that, you know, increased swelling decreases and pain decreases the ability to um, efficiently contract or that, i.e. like grow a muscle. And so by going intense and hard at the start, we really shoot ourselves in the foot down the, down the road when we should be, you know, um, working hard and, and pushing patients. So there's definitely a, a, a period of that like protection phase where you need to let things settle down, gently regain range of motion within that first couple of weeks. Um, and then, you know, start to transition into that stuff rather than being so gun hole about it, you know, one week out. Right. And as you mentioned, you want to get range of motion back early. Now, active range of motion, I've heard some controversial things about this. Um, I've heard some surgeons say they don't want any open chain extension from 45 degrees to zero, or in one case, I heard 60 degrees to zero open chain extension. Uh, and I've heard others say 30 to zero. And I've heard various timelines from just three weeks or four weeks all the way up to eight weeks. 
do the two of you have any thoughts on regaining open chain extension range of motion and what that might do to a post-operative ACL graft? Yeah, so I think um, from from my perspective, I think this there there has been you know as of late a big move towards doing um, long arc quads or open chain knee extension exercises because obviously there's no other exercise that can isolate the quad as well as that. Um, I think that's important, and I think a lot of studies are coming out to show that that there is really like minimal stress or minimal risk um, to like injuring the ACL like during that process or putting undue stress on on the ACL early on from that process again I think right now we're in this phase where we've taken that early research and just applied it in you know in a logical like um way we're having people perform um weighted long arc quads on isolated like knee extensions you know at prior to one week um you know the way i would integrate that is make sure that person can go through that process we talked about of of doing um those clean heel pop straight leg raises um regain some sort of ambulation and then we're sort of like in that process while they're going through that and um that that um learning to to move around the environment like standing more normally we're sort of starting with an assisted um long arc quad on the extension you know where you're you know helping them go through that motion um asking and questioning their pain level and then you know reducing the assistance uh assisting more in those that later stage of of the arc, total arc of, of motion um and then seeing if they can maintain that you know smooth um full range um knee extension without pain before we load it, you know, and even if they do that well, we're then applying blood flow restriction as the as the form of um, in, improving hypertrophy or improving muscle mass, rather than like loading it so early. So, like, I think yes, we should do um, isolated knee extensions. No, we shouldn't be as aggressive as we've now moved into the sports PT world um, early on. There's just no need to do that right. Away you know, initially or, or right away, but we shouldn't avoid it for the entirety of, of the, of the, um, of the rehab program. Yeah. I, th I think the, um, you know, the historic uh, justification for avoiding that terminal 30 to 45 degrees of active extension is that that is the position in the active range of motion arc that increases the tension within the graph the most. So it's really that, terminal 30 to 45 degrees of active extension that leads to um, leads to some increased strain within the graft. And there's different reasons why that can exist, but uh, it's one of the reasons is the rotation of the tibia and the femur as you extend the knee. Um, and that's why I think closed chain exercises were, have, have always historically been advocated early on and trying to avoid open chain terminal extension. But I think on, on the other side of that argument though, is, is what you were talking about earlier, which is to be able to actively fully terminally extend your knee and the importance of being able to couple firing the quad from a neuromuscular standpoint with the biomechanical benefits of getting the knee into full terminal extension. So I think there's a balance there. Um, I think if you do it in a protective way, you can tolerate doing that with increasing the risk too dramatically. But I, 
I also think that we cannot be wholly afraid of of terminal knee extension in and of itself in in relation to the importance of being able to get the knee fully extended early. Uh, because if we're if we're just so apprehensive to do any terminal knee extension exercises, it's more likely that that loss of knee extension is going to is going to exist, uh, at least from from an active standpoint. I think passively, there's other things that can be done to try to help with that. But but uh, the active process of extending your knee is going to require some some degree of firing your quad within the terminal portion of extension to do that. I like that point, and I like how you kind of relate it back to the biomechanics of the knee movement itself. Now, skipping ahead here a little bit, as an athlete comes in, they get their quad back, they've got good range of motion, and then they're in that phase where they just progressively get stronger and stronger and stronger. But then they're going to get hit to, I'd say, probably three months or so out from surgery, and you're going to want to start looking for a return to run progression. Now, would you think it would be, I, I already know the answer to this from YouTube, but um, I've seen a lot of physical therapists who will have their athlete or their patient return to run, but they've never assessed double leg or single leg force absorption before, or they, instead of looking at force absorption, they put them on an alter G treadmill and they make them run for 30 or 40 minutes. Um, do the two of you have any thoughts or takes on the whole alter G treadmill or clearing patients for force absorption before you've even looked at how they can land on two legs? Yeah, I think there's, um, I think there's multiple ways to get back to, to running. Um, I think that, you know, I think the alter G in some situations can, can be helpful in that if the issue with the athlete is they can't get the like cyclical motion of running. But I think nine times out of 10, it's not the cyclical motion of, of running that's an issue. Issue, It's your ability to, like you said, man, like absorb and produce force off the ground. So, you know, if you can't do that with gravity, that is normal, then you probably just shouldn't do that. You should do some things that would help progress you towards um, being able to tolerate that. And I think, like, like, you, like you said, man, like one way to remove half of, the gravity or half of the force through a, a limb when it's jumping a landing is to use two legs right and so you can you can start with a little bit of um you know what we call like extensive plyometrics just a little bit of bunny hop um type exercises you know where you're getting up and off the ground coming down and catching softly and making sure that knee transitions into like flexion and, and extension um without having to like have you know expensive piece of equipment um, in, in your clinic. Now, you know, again, like if you have access to that, I, I don't think, you know, I'm sitting here saying like, don't use that. Uh, I just think that, you know, you, we're missing the point of, of, of what's in, important in, in getting someone back to that return to run you know, process. You know, um, I don't think the, the missing link to, you know, why we were good at um, rehab is is due to like our ability to bridge the gap between someone accepting, you know, that gravity exists. Um, so I think that, you know, I, I think while they can be helpful, you know, they're a little bit more of like a, a luxury and not a necessity. Yeah, my, my perspective is that I tell everyone, look, everybody wants to return to run. I get that. It's It's one of the you know, it, it's clearly one of the very aspirational stages of rehab that everyone wants to get to. 
Um, I think in order to return to running, from my standpoint, there are a few uh, achievements that you need to that you need to make. One is you need to have uh, full or very near full range of motion of your knee. The swelling in your knee needs to be minimal, and your strength as defined in a variety of different ways needs to be adequate to be able to return to that. Now, Tim has much more articulately stated what I say to patients about how that transition should occur. And what I tell them is that it needs to be a very progressive process. You don't go from walking to running as a single stage and have success doing that. You need to find ways with walking when you're walking comfortably to then move at a faster pace, whether it's either a brisk walk and elliptical, uh, whatever the process is of moving more quickly and gradually work your way into a jog and then into a run. But you cannot abruptly make a transition from walking to running and expect to have success. At the same time, if you haven't met those other three criteria of having good motion, good strength and minimal swelling, you are virtually doomed to failure in making the transition to running in that state. So I think it, it at least gives people um, reasonable expectations. It gives them things to aim for. They know what they have to do before they're able to return to running that way. And if that happens at three months or four months or four and a half months or whenever it happens, that's when it's time to do it. But I think that the that rather than simply using a calendar timeline, using those different physical examination and physiologic findings is a much more successful means of making that transition and helping them to sort of reach their goals and move forward. I love that you bring that up because unfortunately, I don't think every ACL patient is going to present the exact same way the uh, at the exact same times, right? Like someone might be able to return to run at week 13 and another patient might take week 15 or week 16 before they can get back. And there's so many different individual differences. And we touched on a few of them before, but I would say anything from the physical therapist they're going to all the way up to individual things with individual tissue healing time to how quickly they can get their swelling down and so many other factors go into the individual progression. And I think that's where guys like Tim do it right in the fact that they have a physical therapist one-on-one -on -one with the patient every time. So that way it can be individualized and they can keep eyes on everything uh, that goes on with their rehab as opposed to, you know, really guesstimating what's going on because you're trusting the ACL rehab of a patient to the eyes of a tech with no formal training. Yeah. And I think and the other thing from my standpoint is I think helping patients and athletes to have reasonable expectations for how the process is going to move forward is important in advance of the experience itself. So I try to always talk to people beforehand about this is likely when you're going to be transitioning from one stage to the next. But at the same time, there's different things that need to happen for you to make that transition. So it might be that it takes a little bit longer to get from one stage to another. Um, and we're going to make those decisions as we move through it. But here's a reasonable timeline for when, when you might be making those transitions. There are certain things that are definitely going to slow down the progression, though. There's no doubt that meniscal repairs and treatment of cartilage injuries is going to slow down the timeline and is going to take more extended periods of time to be able to 
make those transitions. And it's important to talk to people beforehand about that, just so they understand what the implications of that are, but that ultimately our goal is to get you back to functioning at the level that you were previously and to try to ensure that you're able to do that for as long as possible. And that may mean that your recovery is going to be longer initially, but ultimately it's going to give you a better chance of continuing to participate in the way that you want to. Right. And once you get that participation back, like say you get the ability to partake in running again, that's a great step towards getting back to quote unquote normal. However, the battle doesn't necessarily stop just because you have returned to running. I know there's a ton of research. I think it was Timmons 2018 that showed every 10 newtons of eccentric hamstring strength you add uh, to an individual, their risk of re-tearing drops like nine point something percent. Uh, and I know there's a ton of other research that shows nine to 12 month rehab total length at minimum. And some have shown like every month after uh, nine months that you keep a patient in physical therapy for further strengthening and other exercises, the risk of re-tearing also decreases significantly, which going through an ACL tear once is bad enough. Doing the same thing twice is, I, I can't even imagine. Tim, from your standpoint, how long are you usually keeping people post-op ACL? And, you know, is there any considerations that would lead you to let someone go earlier than say nine to 12 months or anything that might keep you uh, with that patient longer than that nine to 12 window? Um, I think that, you know, there's, there's always situational factors that, that make, um, you know, that make the decision hard or, or not perfect, but, you know, everybody we have, um, come through has that conversation of, you know, nine months being kind of, you know, the minimum um, that, that we let you go on back to like, you know, full um, competitive play for, you know, for, for heavy cutting sports. Um, I think that's really like undeniably um, the right choice um, and, and, you know, has been shown again and again. And so I think, you know, if you're working with a uh, professional athlete and they're eight months out you know and they're just been signed to, to a team you know we'll have the we can have the conversation say like you know we'd prefer to you know have you wait longer um you know this is this is a situation in which you need to feed your family and you know you just know you know you, you'll you'll know that you're at a little bit higher of a risk at this point um i think the argument though is, is against the quicker is be is better um, and I think the, you know, something we haven't spoken so much, you know, to, about um, today is, you know, the necessity for, you know, return to play or, or frequent testing um, of the athlete, like while they're going through rehab. And so, um, uh, you know, that is probably more important to me than, than the timeline. The timeline sort of serves as like you know, that nine month being a minimum. But I think, you know, what that timeline is suggesting is that, no one is good enough to pass their tests, you know, before nine months and heal internally well enough um, to, to show a good outcome. I think, you know, that's what we're making an indirect um, conclusion about why athletes are more successful after nine months is, is not just the time, but it, it does gen genuinely take that long for us to recover that extensive mechanism. Well, like you said, it does take us that long to add um, a, a sufficient amount of hamstring strength or 
um, stability also does take that long for the ACL to like integrate, mature and, and tolerate stresses. Um, and so I think, you know, that's a, that, that time frame is a culmination of all those things. Um, but, you know, there's factors that, that we have control over, which are, um, you know, how much strength training you do, you do, and, you know, you can physically change those things. There are some factors that are out or out, out of our control, like, um, for, for the most part, pretty, pretty out of our control in terms of like, how well does, does the graph integrate? How well does they accept, um, that, that new, um, graph and, you know, um, how strong, how strong it is the graph, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll never know the answer to those things until that athlete gets on the field. Um, but we are able to test how strong they are. You know, we are able to um, see and look at how well that athlete moves. And um, I don't think that that piece of it is achievable, you know, before nine months, if we're honest, um, if we're honest about, you know, what we're trying to achieve. Now, you brought up a great point with the return to sport testing there, Tim. When it comes to that, are you solely focused on like, say, strength measurements, left versus right? Or are you looking more at like the quality of the movement and how the athlete feels to it? Or is it one of those, it depends kind of things and you kind of want a little bit of everything to match perfectly? Yeah, I mean, there's so many um, things that we can look at from like an objective measures, like testing standpoint. Um, We're constantly... I think, you know, looking at what's the best, you know, five or six tests and measures to, to show someone is proficient. Um, and I think, you know, I'm always changing my opinion on that. You know, I think um, a, a lot of the new grads that come out and, and work with us who are getting into sports and, the, and are, are so heavily uh, um, uh, relying on objective tests and measures to show um, that someone is, is ready. I think that is awesome um but i also think that there's a lost art of just sit like watching an athlete move um and and being on again like being honest with yourself like does that athlete look like the other athletes in that strength and conditioning class or like does that athlete look like the other athletes on the field moving and you know if your answer subjectively is not yes then you can run all the tests and measures in, in, in the world on that athlete, but until you can, you know, visually like sub- and subjectively see and hear the things come out of the athlete's mouth that, that says they're ready from a psychological perspective, you know, I, I don't think that, um, that you can put them safely back on the field. I love that point that you just brought up, Tim, because ultimately you can't feel what the athlete is feeling and just because it looks good or just because it's strong doesn't necessarily mean that it feels good to the athlete. And if it doesn't feel right, then I would probably trust their judgment because, well, they know it's their body after all. Yeah, no, I, I, to- I, totally, I totally agree. I agree. I think there's just different facets to, to what, um, you know, what we call like a passing score or return to play. And it's very, very fluid. Um, you know, I think you do need to pass your objective testing. So I think that's really, really important. I think you need to consider the psychological um, position that, that the patient is in. I think you need to, to, to consider this, the subjective um, uh, movement of the athlete. And then I think you need to give them a long enough period of time to reintegrate at a, um, 
you know, at a limited level or progressive level within, you know, within the op open environment of, of practice to also pass someone to return to sport. And so I think there's um, a much heavier emphasis right now on making sure that we get up to speed as a profession on making sure we have objective measures that, that make the, um, that show the athlete is ready. And again, like I said, I think that's awesome. I think that we probably to get further down the, the road also need to have a list of all of these other factors that are on a checklist um, that get there. Um, and I think, you know, after we do that, we get a lot better at this process. Um, the tough part about that is that the more things that we add, you know, the harder it is to pass that test, you know, and then at some point we ask ourselves, like, are we ever going to let our athletes get on the field and play? You know, and, you know, I can rehab an, an ACL really well if I never let them go back on the field, you know? And I, so at, at some point, like, you have to make a decision on like, yes, you can go or, or no, you can't. And so like, I think that is, is, is what I think experience and, and very individual to everybody's is case. I like that. I like that a lot. And that experience comes both in the physical therapy and rehabilitation side and the surgical side from the surgeon. With that, just to kind of close out here, Dr. Dries, Dr. Stone, do the two of you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks or anything else that you want to touch on that you feel like we missed? Yeah, I would just say that um, I spoke about some of the evolutionary changes in the management of ACL injuries. And, and I think that Tim just touched on one of those areas in the last 10 years with respect to return to play. It wasn't that long ago that return to play was essentially dictated by six months and one day on the calendar and maybe a Cybex test. Um, and as we know, we continue to see a high number of re-injuries in athletes, whether it's re-tearing their graft or tearing their meniscus or just simply not able to return to sport once again afterwards. So um, I'm sure 10 or 20 years from now, we'll be in a different place. But I do think we've seen some really major shifts in our understanding of these injuries and how we can get better. We'll continue to get better, but we've certainly seen some progress in the last 10 years that I think has, has really changed the landscape for the management of these injuries. I completely agree with you, Dr. Dries. I think that's a great way to kind of summarize everything. Now, for people who want to reach out to the two of you, follow you on social media or, you know, get in touch with questions or anything like that, do you have any good contact info or social media links that people should look for? So Tim, Tim is certainly much further along than I am here. <laughs> he has actually helped me to, um, I, I have an Instagram, um, an Instagram account at Sports Doctories. Um, that, uh, that's my, uh, my Instagram um, and uh, other than that, uh, it's through my office at MedStar Sports Medicine. If patients want to talk more, want to meet with me to talk about their injuries and the treatment that uh, that uh, I might recommend for them. Mine is uh, dr.stone.dpt. Um, that's probably the easiest way to, to find me or, or see kind of like what I'm doing on a daily basis. Um, or And our uh, companies is uh, at True Sports PT. Um, and, and that's where you'll see kind of like, you know, all the athletes that go through all of our different locations. But might I add that we're very excited about Dr. Dries's, um new Instagram handle. Um, <laughs> we've all been waiting a long time and mm -hmm. we're expecting great things. Um, so we're excited. 
Awesome. We'll link to both of those uh, accounts below. Just in case you didn't quite catch it, you can just click there. Dr. Dries, Dr. Stone, thank you again for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.